0: Well, hey, uh, good morning. Um, If you're new with us, my name is Ryan. I serve here as one of the pastors and uh, just want to welcome you again, let you know we're really glad uh, that you're here. And also want to let you know if you're new with us, we're in a series walking through the book uh, of 1 Corinthians. And so if you've got your Bible, you can make your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 uh, really answers for us one of the fundamental questions we're asking. It's one of the things that all of us are really looking for. I mean, this is really the subject of so many of our movies, of our TV shows, of our books, uh, and of our songs. Uh, for example, Foreigner says they, they want to know what it is. They, they want you to show them. Uh, Hadaway has the exact same question. Uh, Heavy D and the boys sing, now that we've found it, uh, what are we going to do with it? Uh, and of course, Meatloaf would do anything for it. I mean, they would do anything for it, but they won't do that, right? Uh, Of course, I am talking about love. Um, We are obsessed with love. Uh, With the idea of it, with finding it, with getting it, with keeping it, with holding on to it, with making sure we never uh, let it go. But love is really one of those things that we talk a lot about, but often uh, not with a lot of understanding. A lot of times we really actually don't know what love is. We really do need someone to show us. Uh, The good news is that's what God is going to do here in 1 Corinthians 13 this morning. In the middle of this section on spiritual gifts, Paul is going to deliver a rebuke to the Corinthians who are obsessed uh, with their gifts and not obsessed with with their character. He told us all the way back in chapter 8 that our spiritual maturity, whether or not we're growing in Jesus, that that's measured not by how much we know, but by how much we love. And here he's going to hit that from a different angle and show us that our spiritual maturity is not measured by the amount of our gifts, but by the depth of our love. Uh, and so let's see this together now. 1 Corinthians 13, we'll actually start at the end uh, of chapter 12 and read through the end of chapter 13. And so starting in verse 31 of chapter 12, the very word of God to us today speaks to us like this. It says, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So three things we see in this passage about love. Three questions that the text answers for us. Uh, First, why do we need love? Uh, Second, what is love? Uh, I'm not going to sing the song. It's been stuck in my head all week. I'm not going to do that to you. So what is love? Uh, And then third, where do we get the power to love? So the why, the what, and the where of love. Let's think first about the why. Why do we need love? Well, you've got to remember, this passage doesn't just come to us on its own, it sits in a context uh, and is in this letter of 1 Corinthians, and Paul did not uh, primarily write this passage to be read uh, at weddings. Now, I know it gets read at weddings all the time. If you had this passage read at your wedding, no shade. Like, I I think that's great. If you're going to have it read at your wedding, again, that's awesome. If you love your spouse like this, that's going to be a really good thing uh, for your marriage. But Paul did not primarily write this to address marriages and weddings. This is primarily addressing our life together as a church, Uh, The Corinthians were obsessed with all of these big, flashy displays of spiritual gifts like tongues and prophecy and words of knowledge. They thought, this is how you know the Spirit is really active and at work in the life of a church. But Paul is saying, without the presence of love, all of those great displays of gifts are meaningless. They're worthless. They mean nothing. I mean, look again at what he says. In verse 1, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And so if you had like the ability to just mesmerize people with your speech, if when you speak... People are like, you've got them on a string. They'll do whatever you tell them to do. You can lead and persuade people to go wherever you want them to go. If you had the gift of tongues, you were able to speak in a language you didn't know and kind of mesmerize all of us. If an angel showed up to church this morning and you were able to hold a conversation with them and all of us are kind of just sitting back in awe like, oh my gosh, how is she doing that? Like even if you had all of those powers of speech without the presence of love, you're just as annoying and obnoxious as a gong or a cymbal that's just clanging and banging over and over and over. He says, if I have all prophetic powers, so not just some prophetic powers, all prophetic powers. So you're always there with a word that's right on time, and you know how to just build people up like crazy. You know exactly what to say, and he says, if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge. So you know doctrine in and out, and you can explain difficult concepts and teachings of the Bible with ease. Uh, If people look to you for the answers, and he says, if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, so you can just trust God to do really whatever you think He's going to do, you know He's going to come through with it. If you say move and something moves, uh, and then he says, if I give away all that I have, and so if when the offering buckets come by later this morning, if you put in the note to your house and your car in the bucket, you're just on a different level than everybody else, right? That, that's a sort of sacrifice that other people aren't making. And then he closes out by saying, if I give up my body to be burned, uh, so if I die as an act of sacrifice for Jesus, which, let's be honest, is a lot further than many of us would be willing to go, Paul says, even if I had all of that, if I don't have love, I am nothing, I have nothing, and I have gained nothing. It's meaningless. Now, think about all that Paul just stacked up here. This means that you can be an incredibly gifted and charismatic person. Again, the type of people look to and wish they had the influence and power and ability and giftedness that you did. The type of person who can lead people to go wherever you want them to go. Uh, You can know and have a grasp of the depths of theology and be able to explain it with ease, to be someone that people look to for the answers. Uh, You can give away all that you have. You could sacrifice and give of yourself and give of your things in a way that would make Mother Teresa look selfish. And, And even with all of that, even if that was all you and the same person, if you don't have love, it's meaningless. It's not just, hey, you did a lot of great things, these things over here just could have been a little bit better. No, it's worthless. It's absolute garbage. You have gained nothing, you have nothing, you are nothing. Now, why? Right? Because I'm assuming as we read through this, you're thinking what I am, which is, Man, if somebody's using their gifts like this, and if they're that gifted of a person, if they're taking the time to learn the depths of theology like this, and if they're sacrificing and serving like this, surely it has to be because they love God, does it not? What's wrong? Uh, I can think of at least three reasons why we would go to the lengths that Paul describes here and, and it not be out of a love for God and a love for others. One of those reasons is just a love of other people's praise. And so you use your gifts, and when you use your gifts, people praise you for it. And so you start working harder to use those more and be noticed and praised more for that. Or you take time to learn theology so that people will look to you as somebody who has wisdom and as a source of authority, and it feels good to know the answers. Or you'll serve and you'll sacrifice because people will notice that, and they'll commend you for your hard work, and they'll talk about what an example you are. When you do all of that, if that's the reason you're doing it, you're not doing it because you love God and you love others. You really love yourself, and other people's praise will stoke the fires of your love for yourself. And that makes it meaningless. That makes it worthless. Uh, A second reason that we might do all of these things without love uh, is because we really just do them to feel good about ourselves. Now, a lot of us fall into this trap. We will uh, take the time to learn theology. We'll use and develop our gifts. We will serve and sacrifice because it makes us feel good about ourselves. It puffs up our pride because when you serve and sacrifice for someone, you know what you can do? You can internally pat yourself on the back and think about how awesome you are and how much of a servant you are and how nobody works as hard as you do, and that feels pretty good. And you can look down your nose at other people who you feel like aren't as gifted and talented as you are. Don't know as much as you do. Don't work as hard as you do. Don't sacrifice like you sacrifice. Aren't as serious and committed as you are. And let's be honest, that feels really good too. And the truth is, a lot of us do this. We do good things, not because we want to serve others, but because we love ourselves and because it'll make us feel better about ourselves. We're doing this to try to heal some deficiency and insecurity we have in ourselves, because when we look to measure ourselves up and try to measure up, will I be acceptable to God? Have I done enough? Uh, we're at least able to look back and say, well, I'm I'm serving more than other people are. I know more than other people are. I'm more gifted and God's using me and he's blessing the use of these gifts. So surely I'm gonna be okay in the end. And and again, when you do that, you're not doing it because you love others. You love yourself and doing good things will give you an opportunity to feel better about yourself. And that's also worthless. Worthless. And three, the third reason, without a deep grasp of the gospel of grace, all of our attempts to do good things are just going to end up being a means of us trying to make ourselves right with God. You see, if you're actually going to be able to love God and love others, you need the gospel. Because without the gospel, all of these good things that you might be doing are just going to turn into a self-salvation project. Uh, think back to when you were in school. Maybe some of you are still in school, but think back to when you were in school, the, maybe the hardest class you ever had to take. Let's say you were failing that class and you needed that class uh, to, you needed to pass that class to get your degree and to graduate. Well, if that were to happen, what would you do? You'd probably stay up late studying. You'd spend extra hours doing the practice quizzes. You'd make sure you did all your homework. You would make sure you wouldn't skip class. You would pay attention in class. If the teacher offered time outside of class, like office hours or just extra credit work, uh, you would be there making sure you did all of that work. You would do all of those things in a way that would really impress everybody else in the class. Like, man, they work harder than, than all of us are. But would you be doing any of those things because you love the teacher and you love the subject and you really just wanted to learn? No, right? You'd be doing all of those things because you wanted to pass the class, because you needed to pass the class. That's how a lot of us treat Christianity because every other religion works this way. I do good stuff because if I do good stuff, then God will love me. Then God will accept me. Then God will bless me. And show favor to me. And look, that will inspire a ton of hard work and sacrifice. People will go to the links that Paul describes here, but again, it's all in an attempt to save themselves and to make themselves right with God. Every other religion works this way, so we just import this onto Christianity and we think, okay, if I want God to move into my life and to bless me and show favor to me and be kind to me, man, then then. Here are the hoops that I have to jump through. Here's the homework I've got to complete. Here's the test I have to pass. And that's wrong. Listen, Christianity is so different because only in Christianity do you get the report card before the test. Only in Christianity does the verdict come before your performance. And so you need to understand and grasp the gospel, that you are acceptable to God. God shows favor to you, not because of anything you have done or left undone, but because of what Jesus has done. Without that, without working from the acceptance and blessing of God, instead of for the acceptance and blessing of God, you're you're not ever going to be able to love God or others when you do all these things, because in doing all these things, you're just trying to save yourself yourself And again, that means that everything you do is worthless. It's meaningless. It profits nothing. And so Paul works through all of these and gives all of these and tells us, like, we need love. Love is more important than gifts. Love is the only context in which our gifts should be rightly practiced. Now look, we as a culture, and then just kind of because of our sinful nature, we really, really value talent and giftedness and charisma over character. But Paul is saying that's the height of foolishness. Because as we just saw, without the presence of love, all the talent and giftedness and charisma and knowledge and ability in the world is absolutely meaningless. It profits us nothing. This is why we need love. And so Paul knows, after showing us why we need love, we're going to ask the question, if we need it so bad, what is it? What is love? Uh, And he's glad you asked, because he's going to give us a 15-point description of love in verses 4 through 7, which, for the record, is a a sermon with more points than I have ever preached. Uh, So he, uh, he went on longer than I did, but he's going to give us this summary of love uh, and we're going to walk through that phrase by phrase, but first I want to give you an, an umbrella definition that I've found really helpful uh, from a guy named Jared Wilson. He wrote a book called "Love Me Anyway" on 1 Corinthians 13. It came out a few years ago. Uh, really helpful. I'd recommend it to you. It will, it will benefit you. Uh, but here's his definition for love. I'll give you this. We'll walk through Paul's, and then we'll come back to this and see how it sums everything up at the end. He says, "Love is an orientation towards others." for their glory and their good. Love is an orientation towards others for their glory and their good. Here's what he means by that. Paul says love is patient and kind. Patient means uh, that you don't apply to people, you don't treat people like they're already supposed to have reached perfection. You don't hold out affection towards them and you don't hold out love towards them until they get everything figured out. It means you love people uh, not as a project that you're trying to fix up. You love them as they are with all of their mess and their mistakes and their quirks right now. And it also means you don't project your desires onto them that they be more like you. Uh, Here's what I mean by that. This is Jared Wilson again from this book. He said, "Uh, in the beginning of my marriage, I wanted my wife to be more like me. Why? Because I really love myself. I think I'm great. And all the things about her that weren't like me seemed like deficiencies. Now, we don't just do this in our marriages. We do this with all of our relationships. And love means that we, don't, we can love people who are different from us uh, because we're not just treating them like a mirror to reflect ourselves back to us. We love them. We don't just love us. Love is kind. Kind is uh, more than just being nice. Kind means considering others, thinking of others above yourself. And so to be kind means you don't just think about how something is going to affect you. You also consider how it's going to affect others and how you can privilege them above yourself. And then he moves and he tells us love does not envy or boast. This is really the two flip sides of the same coin. Envy is wanting and wishing that you had something that others have that you don't, Uh, Boasting is celebrating what you have uh, that others don't. And so love is able to rejoice when others succeed, when others get celebrated, when others get noticed, when somebody else gets the promotion uh, without stewing on the inside about how, man, it should have been me. I should be the one being celebrated. I should be the one being recognized. Why does no one ever notice my hard work? I'm way better than this person is. Love doesn't do that. Love also doesn't boast and celebrate and let everybody know how much better you are than everybody else. Put it in context here. This means love, one of the ways this would play out here for us is love doesn't boast about, well, man, I'm more gifted than you, or I've got a better gift than you do, or I'm more necessary to this church than you are. So he says love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy or boast. And then he says it's not arrogant or rude. Arrogant is just a complete focus on yourself. Uh, You think that the world revolves around you, and when people don't treat the world like it revolves around you, they don't meet your expectations, you get angry. You're so self-absorbed and you're always frustrated because your internal dialogue is always about what I deserve, what I'm owed, what I should be getting, what's in it for me. Uh, You get angry when people don't meet that. A lot of commentators that I read talked about how rude in this context means dishonoring. It means love does not dishonor. What that means is you don't treat other people like tools and instruments that you use to get to what you really want. People don't feel used by you. They feel loved by you. So it's not arrogant or rude. Then he says love does not insist on its own way. Now, this is another one of those things that's going to be really countercultural for us because everything in our culture feeds our narcissism and our self-absorption and our focus on ourselves. For example, how much self-help advice do you hear nowadays about how you should basically treat your friendships like business transactions uh, and, and weigh those out based on how they're going to benefit you? And so if you have a friend that's really not there for you when you need them, if they're kind of holding you back, if they're being a lot of emotional work right now, if they're uh, just not what you need them to be, then it's okay to just drop them because you're never going to get ahead in life hanging out with losers like that who hold you back. We're, We're taught to go into friendships and relationships and treat them transactionally. What's in it for me? How can I benefit? How can they help me reach my goals? What can I get out of this? In contrast, love does not go into a relationship asking first what it can get out of it, but what it can give to it. How you can be the friend who's serving and meeting needs and is there for somebody when they need you. So love doesn't insist on its own way. He also says love is not irritable or resentful. Irritable means that you're not easily angered. It means that that people aren't afraid that one false move, one false word is going to set you off. That people don't have to feel like they need to walk around eggshells when they're around you, because you're not easily angered. And, and says love is not resentful. Resentful, but notice the footnote here. This means love does not keep a record of wrongs. Uh, I found a quote from J.D. Greer that I thought explained this really well. Uh, he said, "Some people, when they get angry, they get hysterical." But other people, when they get angry, get historical. That's what it means to keep a record of wrongs. So when somebody does something to you that you feel like is unjust or they sinned against you, uh, you add that to the list of things they've done against you. You pull out that record and you're like, hey, this is just like what you did to me back in January and back in October when you did this. This is always what you do. This is who you are. Don't you see this pattern? Look, love doesn't do that. Love doesn't keep up a record of wrongs that it can pull out to judge somebody with, love forgives and wipes the slate clean. And again, this is going to be an opportunity for us to be very countercultural here because by and large, our world does not forgive anymore. It just cancels. But in contrast, we are called to offer genuine forgiveness to not keep a record of wrongs and wipe the slate clean and not hold that against people. He says, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Now, this means that love is not just kind of mushy sentimentality or blanket affirmation of everybody's choices. Love does not rejoice in what is sinful and what is evil. It rejoices in the truth. So you just need to kind of know yourself and know which ditch you're more likely to fall into. Because some of us really enjoy telling people the truth, whether or not it affects our relationship with them at all. We don't really care about how it's going to affect the relationship. We really just enjoy telling people the truth, while others of us never actually get around to telling people the truth because we're afraid of what that might do and how that might ruin the relationship. Love doesn't go to either of those extremes. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing or evil, but it rejoices with the truth. And then he moves into this final summary in verse seven where he says, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love bears and endures all things is really similar to patience. You're able to bear with people who don't have it all figured out yet, which, uh, a hint, that's everybody. You're able to bear with them and not quit on them and bear with the normal everyday ways that they're going to sin against you, that they're going to get it wrong, that they're not going to consider you in the ways that maybe you like to be considered. It means you are there for them. You're in it for the long haul with them. You're not going to quit on them or change your mind about them. Love believes and hopes all things Means that you believe the best for people, that because of the gospel, you're an optimist. You don't give up hope for what Jesus can do and how Jesus can change somebody's life. You don't just see someone for their sin and for their mess, but who Jesus could transform them to be, and you champion that hope and that belief. You work to see that hope and that belief realized. Now, just real quickly, I'll tell you, this is one of those verses that, again, has been twisted and misinterpreted as a way to justify uh, abuse. And so, say, for example, that a husband is abusing his wife, and she brings that forward, and then he denies it. And then we just say, well, you know, love believes all things. We've got to believe the best about people. And, I mean, he said he didn't do it, so we got to take him at his word, do we not? Like, uh, he's the last type of person who would ever do something like this. Well, here's why that's wrong, and that's what, not what this verse is saying. A couple reasons. One, if we did that, we wouldn't be believing all things uh, for the wife in that situation who had the courage to bring that forward. We just dismissed her, right? But then second, love believes all things. It's not this sort of naive gullibility where you just close your eyes and you don't ever, uh, aren't ever able to see just the realities of a situation around you. No, we are able to, at the same time, uphold consequences and justice and still want the best for someone. You can walk and chew gum at the same time. You can uphold both of these. And in fact, in a case of abuse, it's actually believing the best and wanting the best for someone who's being an abuser to face earthly consequences and justice so that they might repent and so that they might do that, not do that anymore. And it is good for them in this. And so this is not a means to try to justify and downplay and diminish abuse, but this verse is talking about an optimism uh, because of what Jesus can do in people's lives. And I am so grateful for the mentors. I'm I'm thinking of two in particular who, especially when I was early on in ministry, uh, saw more in me than just a young, arrogant know-it-all who thought he was better than everybody else. Instead, Uh, They championed what they saw God doing in me. Uh, They didn't just see me for all that sin and all that pride and what I was. They championed what God was moving and working and changing in me. They didn't give up on me. They didn't make that the means of their relationship with me to always try to correct me and and show me everywhere where I was going wrong. They bore with me. They endured all things. Uh, I'm grateful for the ways that they still continue to do that As somebody who's still up young and arrogant and gets things wrong and makes mistakes and sins the way they still champion what God is doing in me and how God is changing me that's what this looks like it is this eternal optimism not because people are really great and we're going to be able to figure it out but because Jesus is risen from the dead and is still about the work of changing people's lives And so you believe and you hope that Jesus can still do that in anybody's life. You don't give up on them. And so Paul gives us this summary of love here in verse 7. And, uh, you know, so often this gets read at weddings and applied to marriages because this is really the only sort of context that we have uh, in our culture for this type of love, this sort of I'm committed to you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going to change my mind about you type of love. But again, this is not primarily about weddings and marriages. This is about the church. This is about us. This is what our life together should look like. This is what we should be characterized as a people with one another. We should be loving one another like this. Uh, I'll come back to that Jared Wilson definition. Love is an orientation towards others for their glory And they're good. This means you orient yourself towards others here in the church and think, How can I give of myself so that they can flourish? So that they can reach their glory? That means what Jesus created them to be. So that they can be all that Jesus desires them to be. How can I show kindness? How can I forgive? How can I insist on putting their needs and wants above my own? How can I uh, be slow to anger? How can I be patient so that they might reach that? They might reach their glory and their good. That's what love looks like. When Foreigner sings, I want to know what love is, you don't have to sing along anymore. You can still, because that's a really good song. uh, But you don't have to, because you do know what love is. This is what love is supposed to look like. And that moves us into the final question that Paul answers here in this text, which is, where do we get the power to love like this? If, If love is this important, and this is what it looks like, where do we get the ability to be able to do this? Well, look again at what he says. In verse 8, he says, "...love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away." So Paul swings back to these spiritual gifts, and he talks about how in contrast to love, these spiritual gifts are temporary. They don't last forever. They are gifts that Jesus gives us to help us while we walk in this life. But when Jesus returns, that's what Paul means when he says, when the perfect comes, uh, these gifts will pass away. We won't need them uh, any longer because we'll have Jesus face to face. This is what he's talking about in verse 11. So when Paul's talking about being a child and becoming a man, he's not literally describing his own life. He's using this as a metaphor to describe the spiritual gifts. So in this life, we are like children who need this sort of baby talk to help us and help us be able to understand. But when Jesus returns, we will reach maturity And we'll put these childish things, tongues, prophecy, words of knowledge, we'll put these things away. We won't need them anymore, because then we won't just know Jesus dimly by faith. Uh, We'll see Him face to face, by sight. We won't just kind of know Him partially. We'll know Him intimately, and experientially, and fully, just as He has known us. And, And so, these gifts, they're a gift that God gives us for this season as we walk in life. Uh, But they're not eternal, they don't last forever, we don't need them forever like love. Because in, in contrast to these gifts, faith, hope, and love remain, and the greatest of these is love. Love is the greatest because love is the goal of faith and hope, it's what faith and hope are working towards. We have faith and hope that we're going to see the object of our love, the triune God. You and I, if we're in Jesus, we're going to spend an eternity loving God and loving one another, uh, unlike these gifts which are going to pass away. And so love is more important than gifts. Uh, Love is the only fuel in which the gifts can rightly have their place and rightly get practice. Which again, just drives us back to the question, where do we get the power to love like this? Because, man, if love is this important, if we need it, if it's more important than gifts, it never ends, uh, where do we get the power to love like this? Because I'm sure if you're like me, as we walk through that definition of love in verses four through seven, it was like one more brick of shame being stacked on top of your head one after another, like, yeah, I don't do that. I don't do that. I fail at that. Not very good at that. That doesn't describe me. Tell you what, I am really irritable. I I do keep a great record of wrongs. I do make everything about me. I do envy others who succeed. I do have to let everybody know when I do something good. I mean, just put your name in here as a substitute for love and see if this describes you. See if you can get through it. Ryan is patient and kind. Jesse does not envy or boast. Bobby's not arrogant or rude. Jennifer does not insist on her own way. Man, it's it's awful, right? Only the most arrogant and the least self-aware of us would be able to read a description like this and be like, yeah, this is a pretty good mirror. This describes me really well. I am just crushing this. And listen, me just telling you, well, hey, go home this week and try really hard to love other people in the church like this is not going to be enough because you can't make yourself love something or someone that you don't love. I mean, for example, like you could tell me 10 times a day for the rest of my life to love salmon. Uh, You could scream at me every day, you need to love salmon. If you were bigger than me, you could force feed me salmon every day for the rest of my life, but you cannot make me love salmon. I I promise you that. You will not be able to make me love it because you can't make yourself love something that you don't love. If you and I are going to be able to love one another like this, then something has to change us first. Or maybe better said, uh, someone. Putting your name into this list is pretty crushing, is it not? But what if there was someone's name that was meant to go there before yours? What if your name wasn't meant to go there first? The good news is that there is someone's name who belongs there first, and it's not yours, it's Jesus's. You see, by giving us a description of love here, Paul is giving us a description of Jesus. Put Jesus' name in here for love and think about how He's been towards you. Jesus is patient and kind. When all you had ever done was run away from Him, He did not run away from you. He did not wait until you got your act together and you cleaned your life up. No, he, instead, He saw you in all of your mess, all of your sin, all of your rebellion with eyes wide open. None of it missed His gaze, and He still willingly went to the cross to pay for you and bring you back to Himself. He did not wait until you had figured everything out. He did not wait until you started to love Him. No, He loved you way before you ever loved him back. He considered you. Jesus does not envy or boast. Philippians 2 says that even though he shares equality with God, he did not consider his equality with God something that would keep him from coming to earth, taking on our humanity, and dying on a cross for you. He does not ask us to get up to his level. He comes down to ours so that he can raise us up with him. But the whole world really does revolve around him, but he doesn't insist on his own rights and his own comforts. He's not arrogant. Instead, he laid them down to save you. He did this to save you. He doesn't treat us as tools or instruments. Instead, he lays down his rights and his comforts to save us. Jesus does not insist on his own way. When faced with the threat of death on the cross and the wrath of God for our sin being poured out on him, he prayed in the garden, Not my will, but yours be done, and willingly went to the cross and took that to pay for you. Jesus does not, he's not irritable and he does not keep a record of wrongs. Listen, some of us had really bad examples in parents who just flew off the handle anytime we did something wrong. But listen to me, that's not Jesus. Jesus is not up on a hair trigger in heaven. Jesus is not waiting for you to do something wrong so that He can have something to scold you about. Jesus is not easily angered. And instead of keeping a record of your wrongs, Colossians 2 says He took that record, nailed it to His cross, and paid for it in His blood. Micah 7 says that he took that record, drowned it in the sea, never to come up again so that we would be able to relate to God based off of his record and not based off of ours. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing. He rejoices with the truth. He does not wink at your sin or affirm it or sweep it under the rug. Instead, he pays for all of it so that it would not stand in the way of a relationship with God. Jesus bears all things. He believes all things. He hopes all things. He endures all things. Jesus bore and endured all things on the cross. He does not just see you in your sin, but for who He can transform you to be. He does not quit on you or change His mind about you, even though He had every reason to. Instead, He saved you. He brought you back to Himself. And that's love. And that's the best news in the universe. Jesus loves you. Not just other people that you think are way better Christians than you are. Jesus loves you like this, with this sort of love. That's the way he loves you. And if you will receive the love of Jesus into your heart, the love of Jesus will begin to reorient and reshape and rework the loves and desires of your heart so that more and more, you will be able to love others. Or again, better said, His love for others will begin to flow through you. First John 4 says we only love God because God has first loved us. And so let His love change you. And so for example, let's say you do good things because you want to do good things to feel better about yourself. Well, you do that as a way to try to justify yourself so that when you measure yourself up, you measure up. You've been done enough to be able to say, God will probably let me in in the end. He'll sweep this other stuff under the rug. I've done enough to be righteous. But if you will receive Jesus' love for you and God's justifying verdict over your life, that the judgment day over your life has already taken place, the judgment has come down and the verdict is not guilty, righteous in God's sight, not because you've done enough good stuff or you've gone to church or you've been religious, but because Jesus has united you to himself and has given you his righteousness that you are forever fully acceptable to God and He's never going to change His mind about you, if you will get that in your guts and you're just freed up to serve other people instead of using them as tools to benefit your self-salvation project, if you will receive the love of Jesus for you, it will increasingly melt your heart to be able to be patient towards and show kindness towards and forgive others who have sinned against you because you'll realize even though you have sinned against Jesus 10 million times worse than this person has sinned against you, Jesus was patient with you and He forgave you. It'll increasingly melt your heart because when you get it in your guts that Jesus has drowned your record of wrongs in His blood and He doesn't keep a record of wrongs, then increasingly you'll be freed up to not keep a record of wrongs of others like you're the judge over their life. If you will increasingly receive the love of Jesus for you, it will drive out the addiction you have to other people's praise that uses them as tools to just stoke the fire of your own ego. Only Jesus' love can heal the insecurities in you and the deficiencies you feel that cause you to envy and boast and be arrogant and make everything about yourself. The measure of our spiritual maturity, whether or not we're growing in Jesus, It's not how how many gifts we have, not how gifted we are, but the depth of our love. This is what the Christian life is all about. Loving others, growing in love for God and love for one another. And if you're going to grow in love for God and love for one another, the only way you're going to be able to do that is by first letting the love of God change you and become the most defining and true reality in your heart about your life. Listen, trying to do these things without the love of God for you is like trying to drive a car with no fuel and no engine. And listen, there are places to go in the Christian life. We want to drive the car. We are called to love like this. This isn't just a description of Jesus. We want to love like this, but without receiving the love of God for you, you're going to be like Fred Flintstone with your feet through the floorboard just pedaling as hard as you can. And unlike him, you're not going to go anywhere. And it's so... Receive the love of God. Make this the great work of your life to get your heart happy in Jesus and settled in His love for you. Let yourself be loved by God. And set a time during the day when you're going to pray and you're going to meditate on Jesus' love for you until it begins to warm your heart and transform your heart. Use this passage as a means to do that, to give you uh, ways to do that. The great work of the Christian life is... Learning and believing and receiving the love of God for you as the most defining and true reality about your life. That the deepest truth about you is that you are someone who is dearly loved by God, even though you've done nothing to earn it or deserve it. The more that truth gets into your heart, the more this description of love is going to be a description of you. Let me pray that it would. Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank You that for all the ways that we fail and we get it wrong and we are selfish and we insist on our own way, You do not. Jesus, thank You that though the world truly does revolve around You, You did not insist on holding on to Your own rights and Your own comforts, but You laid them down to save us. Thank You that You're patient with us and kind with us Thank You that You're not irritable, that You don't keep a record of wrongs. Thank You that You bore and endured all things so that we could forever know You. So Jesus, I pray that this love would get into our hearts. God, that You would move past all the defenses we have about how this can't really be for me, this can only be for people who are better, this can't really be on the table for me. Would you push past all those defenses and would you help us to just let ourselves be loved by you? God, we want to look like this. We want this description of love to be a description of Veritas and us uh, as a people. But only you can do that in us. So God, would you, would you please do this in us? Even, Even today, would you give us, even before we leave this room, opportunities to love and consider one another? I pray that you would. In your name, amen.